0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name's Roger Hudson. And I'm
1: Gavin Talamedi.
0: Today we have a very special uh, guest here on GradCast, uh, the inaugural episode for a new GradCast member, Monica Molinero. Welcome, Monica.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much for, for joining. Uh, so you are a PhD student? Yes. within the health uh, uh, promotion stream, within the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department here at Western University. Yes. Fantastic then. Uh, how how did you come across that, that health promotion stream or, or Western University for your studies in general?
2: Uh, good question. Uh, more than anything, I wanted to find a supervisor that looked at health issues in one way or another, hopefully um, using qualitative research methods. And so, you know, I did some browsing online. It wasn't necessarily that I was interested in Western University. It was more so I was looking for a supervisor that matched my interests in one way or another. And so my supervisor, uh, Dr. Jessica Polzer, is uh, a faculty member in the School of Health Studies, so in the Faculty of Health Sciences. And she's also cross-appointed to women's studies and feminist research as well. And uh, we ended up being a really good match.
0: That's very interesting. But your research, does it cross the the border over into, I guess, the feminist or the gender research, or do you stick mostly with the health promotion uh, aspect?
2: It's definitely more health-based in one way or another. I mean, there's factors of gender that can definitely come into my research into play, Fair I enough, guess, in yeah. one way or another, but definitely I'm more so on the health studies, health promotion aspect of it.
1: So what is it in the um, health studies aspect that you're focusing on in your research?
2: Great. Uh, I guess if we were just to boil it down to the essence of it, I do pediatric cancer research. Um, And specifically in this case, I'm looking at oncologists and nurses that work in pediatric oncology care.
0: So pediatric oncology—that's so cancer in young children.
2: Yes. So pediatric is a term used for the ages of zero to eighteen. Um, so pediatric is also synonymous with the word childhood. Um, they're just
0: less than adult. Yes, less <laughs> than
2: adults. <laughs> Sounds great.
0: And the oncologists—they're just the specialty uh, cancer doctors, or the.
2: Essentially, yeah. An oncologist is a cancer doctor. I guess it's just a fancier term for it. And then mm-hmm. from there, pediatric oncology nurses are obviously nurses that work with children with
1: cancer. Uh, so is it something, is it more that you look into how the nurses and the doctors are treating the children with um, cancer or just understanding why they are wanting to treat uh, the children with cancer?
2: I guess a bit of both. Um, maybe if we were to take a step back from it, when I completed my candidacy exam, I did a paper on... Um, conceptualizations of care and caregiving in pediatric oncology literature. Um, And on top of that, I specifically looked at literature that used narrative research methodologies. So narrative research methodologies, they're a specific type of qualitative research, which we can get into a little bit later. But within this candidacy exam, um, I was trying to see how care has been conceptualized, how caregivers have been conceptualized, what it means to provide care, and kind of how the literature frames everything to begin with. Um, and care kind of applies across a spectrum in one way or another. However, you know, the population of pediatric oncologists and nurses, they're actually a relatively understudied population in the pediatric oncology literature. And on top of that, they're not actually considered caregivers um, at all, really. They're usually actually preferred, um, or I should say they go by their official title and so it kind of raised a few questions about what delineates care versus work and how they personally conceptualize care. And so the research that I'm hoping to do is just that, where I give them the opportunity to just tell me their stories of what it's like or what it is like to provide care to a child with cancer. And from there, they can impose their own interpretations of care and caregiving and let me know what's most important to them in one way or another.
1: So that is the narrative method that you're using, that you're not asking them a series of questions. You just, just sit down and let them tell them the whole, not necessarily life story, but the whole professional story of how they started and where they are right now, and what do they think about the whole process.
2: Exactly, yeah. So a narrative method, or a narrative interview, I should say, which is a specific type of method involved in narrative research, is essentially me sitting down with an individual and going, tell me your story about providing care to a child with cancer or to children with cancer. And then I just sit there and stay quiet, and my participant at that point is able to narrate however they want to, or narrate their story however they want to. So if they perceive care in one way, I'm sure that'll become more dominant. Their story might start with the moment they decided to go into pediatric oncology. I really don't know what they're going to end up saying, and that's kind of the beauty of it as well, is that they're imposing their own interpretations of everything on their story, and the way that they narrate their story is going to be completely different. So yeah, it's a... a specific facet of a narrative methodology.
0: Is there a particular uh, group Of uh, pediatric nurses that you're going to be looking at or going to be interviewing, or is there specific, I guess, uh, segments of the population that you're most interested in extracting this kind of data from?
2: Right. Um, Not in particular, no. You know, I'm hoping to get anyone from any type of experience level working anywhere in pediatric oncology. Um, I'm hoping not to limit it just to, you know, London, Ontario. Obviously, there's a larger population of pediatric oncologists and nurses at SickKids, at McMaster Children's Hospital. Um, And a few other hospitals in southern Ontario. So I'm kind of hoping to go through the entire gamut of individuals if I can, just to get um, different levels of experience, different perspectives, different locations, and how care might be different at those particular locations or personal beliefs. So um, differences are nice, essentially. I'm not necessarily looking for a homogenous group. I guess they're homogenous based on profession. Mm -hmm. But other than that, no, um, differences are great.
0: And you're still in the preliminary stages. You said you have yet to begin the interview process. Right. So are you, I guess, constrained by the narrative method that you're using or do you have an opportunity to I guess, really design the the types of questions or the angles at which you want to approach the the study from.
2: Right. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm constrained by the narrative method whatsoever. I think the narrative method is actually probably the most, or at least one of the most open ended qualitative methodologies that we can go with. And the beauty of the narrative method is that usually you start with one interview where you just let your participants say what they have to say. And throughout the interview, you know, you can write down little points based on what they're telling you and kind of probe based on that or ask them to elaborate in one way or another and from there you go back um, you take the audio from the interview and you transcribe it so I'll be transcribing everything by hand Into and
0: textual format I yes guess.
2: so Microsoft Word. Uh (laughs) Nothing uh, too fancy or too special. Um, I'll be transcribing everything verbatim. So every um, every ah, every pause, when they laugh, if they cry, whatever it is, that all gets transcribed into a transcript. And from there I share the transcript with my participants. And what we're hoping to do is a second interview after that first one when the transcription's done and when myself and the participant have had time to look over the transcript. And from there, um, based on what they told me in the first interview, I'm going to be developing questions based on what they had told me and kind of use that to follow up in the second interview. And so will they. So by being able to look over their transcription, they're able to sit down and be like, oh, you know what? I really wanted to tell her about this. So I only hinted at this one thing. And I think it's important for her to or important for me to tell her something extra about this. So what's great about the process and maybe sometimes can become a little bit crazy depending on how you look at it is the fact that it's a highly iterative process so each participant is going to have a different set of questions based on what they're telling me and different interpretations of what they're saying based on what they're telling me so there's no standard interview guide or standard interview practice for any of my participants except for the very first question that i asked them in the first interview
0: seems super open-ended and yeah
2: yeah i think the depending on the perspective you, at you look at some people see you know, the beauty of that kind of methodology. Methodology, And then I think at the same time, some people are like, oh my God, it's so open-ended. How am I supposed to be able to do something like this?
1: <laughs> I think having to write for every single, as you said, like pause, breaks, and if someone goes like, um, stumbles, and if they show some emotion, having to write all that down, you'd have to stay pretty much laser focused to the entire conversation. Because if you, I mean, we've all done it, like you you drift out of a conversation, or if you're reading just for a second, and then you have to find a way to get yourself back into it without making it look like the transcript just goes, I wouldn't say blank, but doesn't seem to make sense at a certain point.
2: Oh, definitely. But, definitely. Um, and I think that happens a lot with qualitative interviewing, especially. When someone's new to the method in one way or another, you know, the first interview you do, um, and I'm a TA for the qualitative methodologies course right now, and, you know, one of the difficulties that the students face, we get them to do a practice interview, and um, they really struggle with the fact that they develop this interview guide and they're so hyper focused on making sure that they ask every single question on the list that they stop listening to what their participant is saying in one way or another. And I think. Being able to be attuned to what your participant is saying, as well as being able to make note of the things that they're saying and want to follow up with those things afterwards and stay hyper focused on them is almost an art form that you get more practice doing uh, the more qualitative interviews you do. And then from there, you know, transcription is the same thing. Transcription is... I had to do it for my master's, it takes a really long time. Um, The average you kind of go by when you're sitting there and typing out everything verbatim is um, an hour of typing usually constitutes about 10 minutes of conversation. So if you have an interview that's an hour long, you're gonna be transcribing for six hours and that takes a lot of time. So I've been able to slowly build up my time a little bit where an hour of conversation, or I should say um, 10 minutes of conversation takes me about 45 minutes at this point so I mean at the end of the day it probably saves me an extra hour but it's a there's quite a lot of work that ends up going into it.
1: This makes me a little bit glad just to look at numbers on a data sheet sometimes. Yeah, for real, right? Oh, man.
0: It, it almost seems like uh, AI or artificial intelligence may uh, help with the transcription process. Uh, Google or YouTube even, or is there, is there any possibility Recording of... Recording a device on yeah. a phone? Oh, definitely.
2: I yeah. mean, I have friends who have you know downloaded certain apps that kind of help you transcribe. There's actually transcription services out there, so you can pay people to transcribe for you if you'd like that. Um, the one thing that you need to keep in mind though is that if you are at least for me if you're acknowledging that you're helping co-construct these narratives in one way or another so by that I mean acknowledging that you're an active part in the research process so it's not about you know limiting or acknowledging bias it's more so me acknowledging that you know chances are they're telling a story a certain way in front of me and I'm okay with that and I'm gonna help them come up with their narrative, you almost don't want to download an app or pay someone else to transcribe it for you because it's your work and you're ingrained in it. And Mm. being able to sit there and type everything out bit by bit, however many hours it may take, actually lends itself to... Some extra time analyzing the data, because at times when you're transcribing certain facets of the interview may come back up that you had forgotten about during the interview that add as an extra element. So whether it was, you know, they took a pause, they started laughing, they sniffled at one point when you brought up something that could have potentially been difficult. Those are all little Elements of the analysis that are important to the way someone tells their story, right? It's not just about the content, but it's about how they end up narrating it as well. So by being able to sit there and analyze via transcription, it just adds for that extra element of you being ingrained in it yourself.
0: So I guess getting a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of the analysis Mm -hmm. or of the conversations, I'm I'm curious if you have any, I guess, predictions or inclinations as to whether, because you said that you were going to um, um, interview all different areas within pediatric oncology, I'm I'm curious if there's certain uh, types of individuals or certain areas of nursing where they they work more on the end of life or or palliative end of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, side of things, whereas others are more at the preliminary stages or, or. would you know if all nurses kind of do a little bit of everything and do you think that your results may vary based on I guess the type of uh, cancer they're dealing with or the severity or yeah what stage of uh, I guess their career that they're in and yeah
2: definitely um, I think everybody's a little bit all over the place at least with my experience in understanding what goes into being um, a pediatric oncology healthcare professional or sure. a healthcare provider um, and so you know Do some individuals have more experience with end-of-life or palliative care? I'm sure. Are they necessarily specialized to work in that care? I'm not entirely sure. Nor do I know if they're actively willing um, or volunteering to go into that specific kind of care. Mm -hmm. The way I've come to understand it, at least at this point, is just everybody kind of does. Everybody's assigned to certain cases or certain children, and they kind of just run along the course of treatment and the course of the illness, recovery or potential death with that child and their family. Mm. So I think everyone experiences a little bit of everything when they're working in that field.
0: It's a super uh, intricate uh, process, it must be, and a very special type of individual uh, is needed to to be in that position. Very few of us, I think, are able to put themselves in that position uh, in a workplace on a daily basis. I can't imagine it.
2: No, definitely. I think it's difficult, and I think that's what also makes it You know, I don't want to reduce their experiences down to something that's just interesting to study. Um, But I think it's more important that we're able to, I guess, provide an avenue or at least give them the opportunity to impose their interpretations of their experiences so that we can kind of understand what's affecting them in one way or another, rather than reducing it down to... A specific outcome or a specific facet of the experience because obviously there's a lot of lows associated with it I think that's sure. kind of where everyone's brain goes when they think of pediatric cancer you know I don't I don't think anyone necessarily smiles when they hear sure. pediatric cancer in one way or another so I think you know there's an automatic assumption that it's negative but having said that I'm sure there's some highs or some peaks associated with it right I think it's an ebbs and flows kind of profession and it's how you take the ebbs and flows, which I think is going to be very interesting, and how they end up defining what those ebbs and flows are in one way or another that'll come out through the research.:
1: When you get to start the interview process and you want to, as you said, you want to look at different locations and look at different professions and levels and experiences of uh, all these doctors and pediatricians, do you think you might notice big large or notice obvious differences between them that may say from one from a really large hospital which has a lot? law support staff and is like extremely busy has patients constantly flowing through compared to maybe more local clinic styles where they're either in smaller towns maybe a little bit more rural or they just don't have as much equipment as some of the larger hospitals do you think you may see obvious differences in the experiences they might give?
2: Right. Um, I think there's always potential for it in one way or another. You know, if a certain institution is limited by what care they can provide or what they can end up doing, I'm sure that's going to be a factor in the care that they end up providing and how they feel about the care that they're providing. Um, I don't necessarily see differences amongst locations as I do amongst You know, if we were to split it up between oncologists and nurses, I could see differences between those two populations. I could see differences potentially within gender differences in terms of women potentially taking on more of the emotional labor involved in pediatric cancer care versus men. I could see differences potentially in the personal lives of these oncologists and nurses. So, you know, if you're someone that identifies as a parent or has children, is that going to affect the type of care that you end up providing? And, you know, other factors that we've discussed before, like years of experience, I'm sure will come into play in one way or another because years of experience, obviously. I don't want to say it hardens you, but I think the more exposure you have, the more likely you are to be able to handle the ebbs and flows compared to somebody that's a little bit newer that is still kind of getting their feet wet in this particular field.
0: Seems like a huge amount of resiliency would be needed uh, to to even start or have an interest in this field. Uh, I guess, of course, the differences are, are probably going to persist. But I guess, in terms of similarities, do you think there's going to be some common traits or um, you know uh, personality styles that come out within, I guess, uh, a large proportion of these nurses?
2: Potentially, Anything
0: like maybe in the literature that that might point out. I, I would imagine that you know people that maybe have lost somebody to cancer might be more likely to go into a field like that that's just kind of throwing mm, that out
2: potentially there. yeah i mean if you look at it that way when you think about people's motivations and why they want to get into the particular field that they're in i'm sure there's going to be some motivations about yeah people who have lost family members to cancer who have had siblings nephews nieces cousins whoever with cancer um in terms of personality traits i think Going into the field, I think there's an understanding that you need to be compassionate and you need to be invested in the lives, not only of these children, but you're investing in the lives of their families now. You're disrupting an entire family system. Um, So I think there's definitely going to be some acknowledgement there of particular personality traits. But, you know, other than that, everybody's different. And the way that they end up experiencing things, I think, are going to end up being a little bit different in terms of what's affecting them and what similarities, you know. Obviously, when a child dies, it's pretty devastating for the family, for the team that worked with them. And once again, because it's a chronic illness, you know, it's not like a kid gets diagnosed with cancer and then they get some antibiotics and they get to go home. It's they get diagnosed and from there you're being subjected to whatever types of treatments, protocols, surgeries, radiation, whatever it may be, which could last months or years years at that point. So as compared to an acute care setting, you know, these healthcare professionals are developing relationships with these children and their families, and they're a lot more invested in what ends up happening. So, you know, when they end up experiencing, as an example, the death of a child, I think it's going to be devastating for everyone all around in one way or another. Um, You know, having said that, and I mean, I don't want to necessarily put this in a very negative light, but having said that, five-year survival rates are over 80% for children diagnosed with cancer. So the majority of children diagnosed with cancer do live at least five years past uh, remission at this point, and remission being uh, the point where they're declared that there's no more cancer cells in their body or active in their body.
1: Since the, um, the survival rate is going up, I was wondering, thinking, like, if this research was repeated, let's say, in about 10, 20, maybe even 50 years, I'm guessing then they could even track, compare the stories and the experiences as those decades have gone by to see, maybe there's a trend that as medical, like funding technology seems to improve, maybe their experiences either go go up or, and if it doesn't, then it'll be very interesting to really find out maybe what, if it's not the tech, if even after all these improvements, what is it that might be stopping them from having a much better experience through that, but.
2: Oh, definitely, I mean, If you think about medical technology that's been developed um, in the last, let's say, two or three decades, um, you know, palliative care for children is a relatively recent thing. Um, If you look at literature from the 70s and 80s on pediatric cancer care or pediatric cancer care. Um, you know there's a lot of commentary about children undergoing unnecessary suffering because before they died because there wasn't palliative care or end-of-life care however you want to phrase it that kind of eased the pain or worked in terms of emotion and comfort and acknowledging death or making that topic less taboo so that in itself is a relatively new type of medical care or technology however you want to frame it so You know, as time is progressing, that's the other thing, is survival rates have gone up. They're continuing to increase. So I think what we end up focusing on or what people end up experiencing is also going to change exactly based on what newer innovations come about or how people end up perceiving care or what gets taken into account when it comes to providing care 100%.
0: So I guess just uh, thinking about who your research can really help at the end of the day, Uh, I'm thinking it might apply to some of the nurses, but who do you think would most benefit from the results that you end up coming up with?
2: Right. I think what's interesting about this kind of research is that not only is it examining this particular population of people, but on top of that, in the type of analysis that narrative methodologies kind of lend themselves to is the fact that you can kind of understand some of the context and discourses that are acting upon care. So in this case, you know, there's discourses on childhood and what it means to protect a child or parent a child. Or there's some literature that explains children as essentially being groomed to become productive members of society in the workforce in one way or another. So in examining these narratives not only are you looking at those particular individuals and what they end up experiencing but you're looking at larger societal things that end up acting upon what they're saying so what is society saying about doctors and nurses and the fact that they're medical authorities in one way or another that doesn't necessarily just apply to doctors and nurses that work in pediatric oncology care that runs the gamut of medical professionals Um, when you're looking at childhood illness you know our society isn't necessarily a society that caters to children with disabilities or different needs in one way or another and often when a child survives cancer they're left with late effects almost all of them are left with late effects in one way or another as a result of undergoing cancer treatment so while you survived cancer you don't end up living completely without it it's always a part of your life and ever present in one way or another and there's certain policies and practices that are going on currently that don't necessarily accommodate for children with different needs so you know not only is it going to Look at or maybe be applicable to oncologists and nurses, but it kind of provides a broader social commentary on how we look at children, how we look at children with chronic illnesses, and how we look at individuals that end up providing care to those individuals and what care sure. means and <laughs> what it means to be a caregiver. There's a lot of discourses that end up acting upon it that can be applied to multiple different kinds of populations.
1: So, as you've been doing, like preparing for all to start your interviews and get, like, clearly you've really caught up with all the literature on this topic. So during your grad school life, like how have you found um, balancing that maybe compared to, like say your masters, your undergrad, or with your daily life in general?
2: <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: it's always a question no student wants to hear, ooh, but I know. it's the one that must be told. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, balancing this research—it's very interesting research. I love doing this research, and I think once I get into the nitty-gritty of data collection, data analysis, you know, I'll be investing a lot more time with it. But. As a grad student in general, you know, on top of my personal research, which I've just spent how much time talking to you guys about, you know, I'm a research assistant on four other projects right now um, that are not related to my own personal research, but I've been hired on or asked to help with certain types of qualitative research in one way or another. So I have those going on. You know, I'm involved in certain extracurriculars um, and items like that. So in terms of balancing it all, I think, you know, that started in undergrad because I was the same way I need to be involved in every extracurricular and, every committee and do as much as I could to build up my resume or my CV because I wanted to go to med school and like every other child that went to the sciences at some point or another. Um, I don't think it'll be difficult to balance it, though. I think that's something that I've been able to nail down relatively well. In my master's, I did the same kind of research that involved me interviewing participants and transcribing their interviews and analyzing their interviews. So I'm used to doing that kind of work. I've had experience doing that kind of work. I don't think it'll be too tricky. I think it'll be interesting. But at the same time, you know, I'm just as tired and stressed and overworked as everybody else in grad school. So I'm definitely not going to say that my experiences are any more special or any more difficult. It's just uh, part of the job.
0: No, but definitely the experiences that you're, I guess, gaining, and I guess just part of your personality, uh, communication style, being a more people person, uh, being able to transcribe or, I guess, understand and interpret text and, and uh, meaning within words. I think these are all skills that can be used uh, across the world, to, regardless of where you end up. Uh, working, lots of extracurricular activities. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I'd say so.
1: <laughs> and the reassurance that hopefully... We'll get something out of this at the end. I know,
2: right? Fingers crossed for all of us. Oh, my God.
1: And so, so what is it, like, being? since this is a special episode, um, what is it that brought you to GradCast?
2: Right. Um, I guess a couple things. First is I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time, frankly. I've always been interested in how they were developed, how they were created, and a friend and I always had a joke that we were gonna create our own podcast. Um, And then I had a friend come on as a guest, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to get involved and learn these kinds of things behind the scenes. But on top of that, you know, when you're involved in your program or in your faculty, at times it can get pretty monotonous in terms of what you're doing and who you're seeing all the time. So for me, I thought, oh, my God, this is also an opportunity to make some friends that aren't necessarily in my department and uh, be able to, guess, branch out in one way or another and join an avenue that's supportive of other graduate students because I think at times the culture of graduate school kind of gets us all down we get really competitive with one another and we get not mean but the competitiveness associated with grad school I think at times can kind of bring you down so getting involved in something outside of that that's more supportive than anything I thought would be a great idea.
0: So just coming to the close of the episode, is there any way, uh, if, if if some some of our listeners want to get in touch with you or want to find out more information about your research if, as it comes along, do you think there's a way uh, they can get in contact with you, email, social media, anything along those lines?
2: Definitely. Um, if someone wants to email me, my email address is mmolina3, so M-M-O-L-I-N-A-3 at uwo.ca. Otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Monica L. Molinero. Definitely posting some quality stuff all the time. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they definitely can.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Monica. It's been a fantastic episode. I'd really like to thank you for coming on the show and I uh, look forward to hearing your voice on the podcast as the interviewer. Uh, <laughs> Thanks so very shortly <laughs> in the future. So Monica Molinaro, uh, once again, my name is Roger Hudson. I'm Gavin Talametti. You can listen to us on... Tuesday night, 6 p.m., CHRW at 94.9 FM. If you'd like to get in touch with the show or become a guest on the uh, GradCast, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to find any of our previous episodes, you can check out our archive at gradcastradio.ca. This has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. Hope to see you all next week. Thank you all very much. Have a great week. Take care.